you on mute over there, Jeff? Or oh. you just damn quiet all the time. No, I'm seething. Seething? Oh, cool. Let your hate flow through you. <laughs> Strike us down with all of your hatred. <laughs> Another um, Star Wars reference. What leads to hatred, or what does hatred lead to? Fear leads to anger. Leads to anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. There we go. Yeah. And, and, and suffering. <laughs> podcast is sponsored by Harvest. I use them for tracking work and invoicing clients. You can get a 30-day trial at getharvest.com. Use the offer code RR after your 30-day trial to get 50% off your first month. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. We also have Evan Light. I am here to talk about Star Wars as usual. <laughs> May the force be with you. I didn't say it. Always. We also have Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? And I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com. This week, we're going to be talking about the Ruby in Ruby freelancing. Um, I think last week we did mention that we were going to get, we were going to talk about accounting and handling books. Um, I'm trying to get my CPA to come on and I couldn't get it lined up for this week. So we're going to keep trying. So real quick, I'm just going to read the explanation on here and we, we can see what, what folks said. Let's see. It says, the, the podcast is mostly about freelancing and very little about Ruby. I think the Ruby side is worth some discussion. For example, I'd like to hear what types of projects you're working on as freelancers, what frameworks you're using, only Rails. Uh, if you're building standalone apps or adding features to existing apps, what kinds of features do clients ask? And in general, whether code written by you as freelancers is different than if you were full-timers for the same clients. I know you talked about it a little in the first episode or the second, but I think it's worth elaborating. And then there is a comment from Eric Davis that says, good idea. I'm like, oh, there's one comment. All right, so let's kind of talk about the first part for, for a minute. Are, are we in Ruby freelancing kind of by default? Or is there a reason that you guys work in Ruby in particular? Because I hate Java. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I ran into Ruby because I, I love Ruby after hating Java. It was just that easy. Hate Java, please let me do Ruby. Mine was not so much hate.net, but loved Ruby so much more when I saw it. Oh, well, fine. Wait, I, I, I'm confused now, Jeff. You're being positive. Don't do that. Sorry. But I was freelancing. I was freelancing before the language choice, so it didn't. It just sort of happened that way. But I mean, if I, if I change again, I mean, I'll still be freelancing. It'll just be my language choice that drives the projects that... I'm interested in. Yeah, in fairness, I, I went with Ruby because, no, I really do love Ruby. But just wanted to get that out there. Right. What about you, Eric? Is it kind of just because that's what Redmine's in, or did you kind of transition into it? Or um, I'm a bit different. I've actually been doing Ruby and Rails for a while, and then I've actually freelanced for PHP projects for a while while doing Ruby projects for other clients. And then recently I've been doing a lot of JavaScript. So for me, it's just more along the lines of like, Ruby and for the most part Rails is the best backend language framework for me, but I'm actually flexible and will work with, you know, whatever the project needs, you know. If hey, the code hey, base is like talking about Ruby here. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean like if the code base already has a bunch of PHP or, you know, it's a full JavaScript app, like you're not gonna try to force Ruby into it. So for me it's more along the lines of like if I can help this client and I have skills they can use 
then I'll use whatever skills I have for it. Ruby's kind of my best choice, but I have other choices if they don't want to use Ruby for some reason. Right. I think it's probably fairly true for most of us, too. So it's kind of like what uh, Kent Beck said, I'm partial to languages I'll get paid for. Yeah. Well, yeah, right tool for the right job, too. Ruby's not necessarily always the best thing. Right. But it's the most fun. Yep. So, um... I, I kind of got into Ruby just because um, I felt like that's where I had the most, I don't know, um, between all of my different websites and things when I was, um, when I went freelance, um, I, I had the most exposure there. And so it was easier to find clients there than anywhere else. Um, but I don't have the, the depth of like, well, I came from Java or .NET or PHP or some other language or framework and, you know, can say, yeah, so I'm, I'm here because I really love it more than those other things. I mean, I did do some Java, some C++, um, and C in college, and I've been picking up JavaScript. But I don't know. The, the funny thing was that uh, in Java and C++, I enjoyed programming, but they, they didn't compel me enough to actually want to do it for a living. And uh, I got into Rails um, while I was actually managing a tech support department. Um, and that was what really got me to the point where I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. So it, it's not totally by default that I do Ruby or Rails. But anyway, so um, the other question is, is you know, are you using uh, frameworks other than Rails or just Rails? Or how do you decide which technologies you use for your clients? <laughs> It's usually what is the, my latest rescue project already written in when I get there. <laughs> Most of the, so that was part of the question too is, you know, what kinds of projects do we work on? Um, at least for myself, a lot of them, maybe, maybe two thirds of them are rescue projects of one form or another. And they're written in Rails um, either by a, a con another contractor, um, no one who we know all the time pretty much, um, who's done a kind of crummy job and so they call me in to clean things up. Yeah, and, uh, and otherwise, you know, uh, well there's you know, other work than, than cleanup work, but the cleanup work is the fun one to complain about. Yeah, and for me, I mean most of my stuff is Rails. Um, I'd say 80 to 90% of my work is Red Miner Chili Project, but it's kind of mm -hmm. unique in that they're greenfield things for a client, like the project's a greenfield one, meaning it's all new, but it's usually plugins, so I have to integrate this all new code base into, what is it, 40, 50,000 lines of legacy oh. code. And so it's, I have this combination of I can use new stuff and I don't have a lot of like stuff I need to deal with in my code, but there's like a ton of integration points that's all legacy. Like some of that I think is pre-Rails one day's code that's still in production. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm, like to kind of get back, it's mostly Rails for me. I've done a touch of Sinatra. Um, I think I've done a little bit of just like plain rack stuff, but it's ninety percent is Rails. Right. Yeah, my, all of my projects so far have been Rails. Um, I've done a little bit with Spree, which is uh, you know it's kind of a framework all into itself that hooks into Rails. But yeah, most of it's been Rails, and most of it's been pretty, pretty Spree. vanilla stuff. So. Spree that that was a source of pain for me a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's, I, got, it's gotten better, but still. Um, yeah, it's. I know it's an engine now. Ryan Biggs um, yeah. talked about it recently. When I used it, I don't know about when you used it, Chuck, but when I used it, it wasn't an engine. It was still just. It was an app that you extended in really unusual and convoluted ways. Uh -huh. Yeah, two things on that. Uh, when I was working on it, one was 
that uh, it was a highly customized spree. Um, so somebody had gone in and basically monkey patched over the top of stuff yep. and, and made, made it really, really painful to code against because I had no clue what they were doing. This was pretty much my first project after I got laid off. So, uh, yeah. Oh, so this was when it wasn't, it still wasn't an engine yet then probably. No, it it wasn't. Yeah. Well, back then there really weren't too many good ways to extend spree. Right. (laughs) Monkey patching wasn't entirely uncommon. I'm just saying for my memory of it. Right. But, but anymore, I mean, you know, we're getting, you know, uh, I'm, I've, I've bid on a project where I'll probably have to use spree, but it looks like, yeah, now it's just an engine and you just. You know, yeah, you can customize some of the stuff, but most of it just works the way you want. It, it it really looks like it's come a long way and actually makes sense to use now. So, not to get too far off on a tangent, but a few of the like open source apps like Spree, Redmine, Radiant, uh, a few other ones, they kept basically reinventing the wheel of like how to do not Rails plugins, but like plugins like this is something modular you can yes. install into the app. And I mean, Redmine, because back then I was working on Redmine, Chili Project wasn't around, like decided like, we're just going to use the engines, like the classical Rails 2 versions of engines. And it's funny because over time, I noticed Spree and Radiant and everyone else who you know built, built their own thing ended up doing all the features of engines or actually like moving to engines. And then finally, when Rails 3 came out, that was like, engines are what you should be doing. So, but it's just, it's kind of sad because back in that day like everyone had their own thing everyone had their own mm-hmm. api documentation and now it's finally like you just build this you know mini rails app as an engine and that's right. what you need to do to extend it yeah so one thing that that reminds me of with the engines is that uh, i had one client come to me and say i want this this site you know i kind of built the front end for her and then she's like, and I'll just ma- I'll just manage it with Rails Admin, which is an engine that you stick on the back end, and basically mm-hmm. it's just an interface to your database. And it made sense for her because she was a PHP uh, developer, but her, uh, I was subcontracting to her for another client, and that client I was just sitting there going, how is this client ever going to figure out what, <laughs> what this is? Because it's very database oriented. It's not. Uh-huh. It's not an interface for the the the. the client themselves to really be able to do a whole lot with and you know you try and explain this stuff to them but you know if if they're under tight budgetary constraints or something you know it's just like look it's cheap and it works but you know yeah rails admin is nice i guess when when the tables are some are somehow comprehensible to non-developers when they're named well and their contents make sense but as soon as you start throwing join tables in there and whatnot then and then that's almost any app really then, then they're possibly going to get in trouble if they don't understand databases at all. Yep. But yeah, I heart Rails admin. Yeah, it's it's really nice if you're if if you understand what's going on there, it it does it makes it a whole lot simpler than going in and trying to manage it all through the command line or something. But I really want to hear about the kinds of projects that Jeff has been working on lately. I fall into mostly the same camp that Evan does. I have a lot of uh, a lot of rescueish type projects and then even the ones that aren't rescue i mean they're still fairly established apps that i mean you're just adding to i don't i can't tell you the last time i've had a completely greenfield app for anybody i mean other than myself but so it's mostly rail stuff sometime sometimes some straight ruby stuff and then occasionally there'll be a sinatra app or a padrino app thrown into the mix but i mean nine times out of ten it's all 
all rails for me and, and all older rails too. Like yesterday, trying to figure out how to configure routes for 202 app. I mean, <laughs> old stuff. Yeah. Anyways. Well, when you get a 202 or even a 2.3 application, do you guys usually wind up uh, recommending to them that they upgrade to the latest version, or do you just work with it where I, it's at? I, I almost never recommend to upgrade. It's, I mean, it, I come from a different place than a lot of people, and once you spend money to have people do work for you, then you'll. it's easier to see the other side of things. I mean, yeah, it's really hard to recommend an upgrade for upgrade's sake. Now, I mean, if there's right. a, a security vulnerability and you have to go from 2310 to 2314, then, yeah, you suck it up and you probably do it, and it probably takes an hour. But, I mean, to go from 202 to anything is ridiculous. But to go from, to even go from, like, a 235 to a 3 yeah. app, if if it's not well-tested and well-covered, it's, it's going to be a nightmare. I mean, you got to go to 238 or so to get 2314, 2318, whatever the latest is, to get Bundler and then go to 3.0 and routes change and a bunch of stuff changes for 3.0 and 3.1 is assets and 3.2 is more changes. So it's really hard unless, I mean, I've had, I'm actually discouraging a client from upgrading their response is, well, can we just throw money at it and see where we can get? I mean, they're fairly well covered, but it's not going to be... I don't think it's an instant win for them. Plus, they're using an older app, like three or four years old. So they're using way old plugins, which is an interesting problem for upgrading, especially when you're talking about like attachment foo that was hacked. Like They were hacking on it to make it work for their site. And so... You either have to stick with that and try to make it work, gemify it so you can go to Rails 3 or right. do something crazy like try to shoehorn it into Paperclip or Dragonfly or whatever. So, I mean, nine times out of ten, I won't recommend. I won't recommend. I mean, obviously, it varies for everything. But, yeah, I mean, um, I try, try not to upgrade for upgrade's sake. I mean, it'd certainly be nice to do, but... It's really hard to justify spending people's money for that. Right. So um, it's interesting that you guys bring up the the rescue projects and, you know, Eric's been um, adding features more or less through engines or, or what have you to Redmine or Chili Project. Most of the projects that I've worked for the last year and a half or so have almost all been uh, with like two exceptions that have been Greenfield projects where somebody's huh. like, I have this brilliant idea and I need it built and I will throw lots of money at you and, you know, and you'll make me happy. <laughs> and so, I think uh, I've only had one or two of those in the past two years with my, my current client now and one I had a few years ago. Yeah, it's funny, too, because most of the ones that I've built over the last little while have all been social networks of one type or another. Yep. And so it's, it's oh, we want to get what the... Color is, what color is your social network? Uh, the one that I've been working on most recently is pink. <laughs> and, blue and orange. Yeah, and then I've built a yellow one and a blue one. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me that there are so many of them, but you know they're all focused around some niche or some idea, and that's what they want. And you know, some of them actually have some really interesting um, aspects to them. But um, I'm I'm always pushing my clients a little bit, saying, "Okay, look, you know, how are you going to support this? You know, how are you going to make money with this?" Well, okay, so that gets into one of the other questions in this uh, this topic. 
was uh, what kinds of features do your clients ask for? And in the in the pregame warm up, my first response was features that they probably don't need. And, yes. Uh, yeah, and that got a laugh out of everyone. But when when I said that, I caveated it with, and, and yet we're all experts on this because we all run multi million dollar startups clearly, and that's why we're freelancers. So you know, clearly we know exactly what their businesses need. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the thing is, is um, I don't think I've worked for any of these clients that actually have like venture funding of any kind. Really? So, oh yeah. They're they're all like, yeah, I've saved up a whole bunch of money, and so I need to get it out the door within yeah. a certain amount of time or under a certain budget. Or one of my clients, he actually, you know, he had another business that. Um, actually brought in enough money for him to support employing me for almost a year working on his application. So, yeah, so it's kind of interesting that way, you know, and one of my other clients, he, you know, he basically, you know, he kept us pretty limited to, um, to a certain number of hours every week and, and things like that to manage his budget. And, you know, so it really depends on their situation, but yeah, they, none of them have these ideas that are really, strongly vetted by you know the venture capital community or anything i mean they're all um they're all i'm this guy and i want to build something that does this for this community or this group or you know people with this kind of interest so pretty much everything i've worked on at least in the past two years except for one that the customer i only had for a week i think or two weeks that i mentioned uh, once upon a time other than that they've all been vc funded uh, lots of startups Wow, I wonder what we're doing differently to attract the different types of people. We talked about this at the the, the, uh, the conference uh, podcast. Where oh, right. I, I'm that I'm that I'm I do a lot of my networking, I guess, my marketing, if you will, um, through Ruby Decamp or through going to conferences. And the people I meet there either work at work for startups or work or know people who work at startups. So you know, indirect marketing, I have a lot of contact with startups. Right, that makes sense. And yeah, my latest client is actually a fairly large company um, that's based out here in the West. So, I mean, it's, it you know, it does vary, but yeah, it seems like over the last year, most of my clients have been the, you know, the guy with the idea and, and money to, to throw at it. So, Although, oddly, my latest client is not a startup. Um, it's actually state government, and uh, they found me through a gem that I, I wrote kind of on a lark, oddly. Oh, which one's that? Uh, like the gem, uh, access yeah. commentable with threading, which was something I threw together when I was when I was a startup employee. Um, I threw it together for a project so that way we could you know have co- threaded comments rather than just chronologically listed comments. And really, all it was is just a mashup of access commentable with awesome nested set. Because mm-hmm. when I saw awesome nested set, I thought, hey, this could be like peanut butter and chocolate, and it turned out it kind of was. Um, and the funny thing was, is I built it and then the project I was working on got canned, so I never used it. And of all the gems I put out or all the tools I put out, it's the one that people use the most is the one I've never used. Right. So, so I kind of want to get into one other thing cause it, it just occurred to me, I was looking at this, um, explanation of what this person wants to hear about. And it says, if you're building standalone apps, they wanted to know if we're building standalone apps or adding features to existing apps. One thing that occurs to me is that a lot of times we wind up integrating with other systems like Twitter or Facebook or totally whatever. Um, how often do you find yourselves connecting to the stuff like that? Very, very little. Um, I mean, we do email mostly, but that's in the app. And then I think I've done a touch with the Twitter API, mostly just pulling some data out of it. But I, most of my stuff is like line of business, back office, you know, doesn't need the social features. It's to get 
work done. And so it's, most of it's all internal code. And a lot of the times my clients, their installs are way behind a firewall. So I could even get out if I wanted to. Right. Uh, my experience is pretty much like Eric's. Uh, I reach out to other services occasionally for uh, authentication, um, and then we've got. I have one client that's pushing stuff through Twitter, both as a client and then just as messages to their own Twitter account. But I mean, I I've done more of that stuff for my own projects than I have for client work. Right. Real quick, I, now I think about it, I have done some external stuff, but it's LDAP authentication and then single sign-on authentication. So it's still internal, but it's hitting another internal server. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, with the projects I've worked on, there almost every project I've worked on is some kind of third-party integration. Um, I guess it's Rich Kilmer who said that Ruby is the glue that doesn't set, so always some kind of integration to work. But I don't. I've never actually had to specifically integrate against Twitter. I had to deal with Facebook Connect. Hated it. Um, and <laughs> but really, it, let me tell you how I feel. Um, then everything else I've integrated against has been usually more obscure things. Like I've had to integrate against a um, an, an automated clearinghouse gateway, you know, ACH gateway for moving money around, um, and that was hell. I mean, really, seven different kinds of it, um, and then other simpler and or um, custom APIs for you know small services that I can't even remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I've done I've done stuff with uh, Twitter and Facebook. Um, I've also set things up with OmniAuth so that oh, yeah. people can just sign up with OmniAuth is wonderful. Thank you, Michael Blay. Yeah, in fact, one of my clients, if you want to use his app, you have to sign in with Twitter. So yeah, that, or not Twitter, Facebook. You have to sign in with Facebook. Ew, ew, ew. And, and then it and then it uses the what what is what's the new API the the JSON based API? I don't know. I haven't touched Facebook since Facebook Connect made me ill. What are we talking about, Graph? Yeah, the Graph API. So yeah, it uses the graph API to pull information and stuff. Yeah, we have one, uh, my main, uh, not my main client, one of the clients I have is, um, they're doing strictly Facebook auth for now, or they want to do strictly Facebook auth, eventually open it up to Twitter and LinkedIn, and part of that has just been to tone down spammers, Mm -hmm. so it's easier than trying to deal with spammers on your own, let Facebook do it, because they've got a lot more money to do it, and so, sure, people can game the system in Facebook, but it's going to take a lot longer for them to game the system and then come back and authenticate with us and create an account, so that's been one of the reasons we're doing it, but some of it's a nightmare. I mean... uh, (laughs) Dealing with Facebook, yay. Some really, really esoteric cases. And uh, it's likely not fa- Facebook's fault. It's likely this code. Uh, oh, okay. I, I tweeted about it. it. makes you want to stab your eyes out, eyes out <laughs> twice just to make sure you got it right the first time. Is that both eyes yeah. or just the same eye twice? Both eyes, twice. <laughs> so it kind of sounds like an Four off by one error. Four separate stabbings. <laughs> yeah, he should be stabbing three times, not th- three times each, not two, right? Yeah. But yeah, no. So I mean, that stuff. Authentication is uh, authentication is an interesting beast, but yeah, yeah we use OmniAuth, the original OmniAuth, though, like the three two OmniAuth, not the upgraded to one zero. But the process is just so convoluted. Not OmniAuth's process, our process, but. Mm. Right. Yeah, you know that now that you mention it, the few times I have dealt with OAuth in, in client applications, 
there always ends up with some weird convolution because of something specific to the client app. When I when I've used OmniAuth and I've done OAuth just for some little app of my own, it's always really simple. With the client apps, there's always something strange that the client wants to do that makes OAuth painful. Yep. So I'm I'm also curious about uh, testing. Um, I'm assuming you guys all test your code. Maybe I'm, oh, maybe I'm wrong there. No. But. No. Yeah, no. boot up Firefox and just click through for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah. So um, actually, I use you, MapReduce. I mean, I, I basically farm the work out to a whole bunch of people overseas, and I have them split it up amongst themselves, and they click through. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Mechanical Turk. <laughs> so, um, do you ever have clients come to you and say, "We don't want it tested"? Yes. <laughs> Ooh. And this is well. I've, I don't think I've ever had anybody explicitly say they don't want to spend time on tests. But I mean, <laughs> this is a classic bad example project. I guess it's the one to stab your eyes out a couple times with. <laughs> I want to hear more about this one. It's like seventy thousand lines of code mm-hmm. and like five hundred lines of test code. And if you get rid of the scaffold test code, it's probably two lines that don't work anymore. <laughs> And so, uh, I, oh, I classic had, was, issue. I had a client Cla- like that. Sorry, that was the one I fired in two weeks. Sorry, go ahead. So the classic issue is, well, we need to upgrade this authentication stuff because we're having problems with Facebook. And for these three people out of 16,000 people, they can't log in, so we need to upgrade. It's like, yeah, that would be great if we had any tests, but we don't. And this process is not as simple as go over to Facebook, sign in, come back, and we're good. It's come back and we'll go through like 20 different paths and maybe you're good and maybe you're not and you're one of those three people. So I try to explain this to the client. I said, yeah, I'd love to do some upgrades. I'd love to, I'd love to work on some of this code. I'm writing tests around my stuff that I'm doing, but we sort of need full end-to-end integration level features or specs to, to see that this stuff actually works. And some offhanded flippant comment you mean you don't do that already it's like i can't reach through phones and slap people because (laughs) (laughs) i sometimes i wish i could but so in addition to having not done this already which i don't know she's one of these we'll not talk about clients today but yeah, so <laughs> I, Darn it, Chef. I, you know, I was trying to enable you here. Oh man. I don't need an I don't need enabling, believe me. <laughs> I've got every filter at my disposal locked down trying to keep me Oh man <laughs> from Where throwing myself fun? down a pit of hate, but <laughs> I wanted yeah, so- to use some of that for once. <laughs> For the listeners, if you ever see Jeff at a conference and can get him to have a drink with you, you'll probably get some crazy war stories out of him. You know, see, that's the thing. I don't drink, and it's because I'm afraid of who I will be if I do drink. <laughs> you're, you're afraid because if you drink, the FBI will probably come and arrest you for all the NDAs you broke. <laughs> Maybe that. Maybe I would just be cute and cuddly and a funny guy, but I think I would be a raging ball of hate and fury and... I will go to jail. So that's why I don't drink. Well, let's but. see. If you smoke pot, you would probably be the latter. If you drank, the odds are in favor of you being the former. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, well, and no, I'm, I'm okay, fine. In fairness, I'm not picking on Jeff. I'm picking on alcohol. But 
I digress. And no, actually, I've never actually done pot. I've just read an awful lot about this stuff. And that's the truth. Right. So Evan did it in hell. <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not Bill Clinton for sure. <laughs> so I'm a little curious too. Then what what tools do you guys use for testing? Oh, whatever the client saddles me with is usually the first answer. <laughs> uh, it's yeah. a sad it's a sad truth. I really hate. I, I like I like sameness. I like I was going to say homogeneity, but ouch, that kind of hurt my tongue. Um, so I just said it anyway. I, I don't like trying to change um, code bases over to Minitest, but that's what I would use on everything if it were up to me. I'd use Minitest spec, but um, a lot of people use some flavor of R spec. Haven't helped them. A few people even use Cucumber. Um, says the atheist. Haven't helped them. Uh, but whatever's there is, is pretty much what I use. Yeah, I tend to, uh, I mean, uh, this all goes back to, I never have greenfield projects and neither does Evan. So, so it's weird. whatever you get saddled with, basically. I mean, uh, most of the most of the clients that I work with, I fall in the RSpec camp. I don't know if I'm selecting all the test unit folks out or what, but most of them are... RSpec, I have a few that uh, use Cucumber. I have some that try acceptance and RSpec acceptance tests and yeah. specs and RSpec request specs. And yeah. I've tried that some. And to be honest, I would rather go back to Cucumber than mess with request specs and acceptance specs in RSpec. It's just... If I had to I go know. there, I would, I would try to introduce spinach instead of Cucumber just because... <laughs> Jesus, you call by regular expression is the root of all evil. <laughs> now, wait, is spinach a real thing? Yes, yep, yep, it is. All right. Spinach is a real gem that that is still tied to gherkin a little bit. Basically, it just takes gherkin and then generates a um, essentially a scaffold for your test, which, by the way, looks almost exactly like this thing called CUDA, which looks almost exactly like this thing called RSpec Story Runner from back in the day. Um, and then you just put you just fill your test steps into these little blocks that map directly to these strings. So there's none of that regular expression crapola in there, and you know it's just code instead. That, okay, I'm gonna stop now. <laughs> Chuck's, heard me, Chuck's heard me go on about this before. I'm gonna stop. That. Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those of you who don't know, um, Evan wrote coulda. So. Uh, it's okay. No one uses it. You didn't have to mention that. Oh, I'm sure somebody uses it. Yeah. Five people out there. Thank you very much. Five people. Yeah. All right. So, um, uh, the other thing I'm, I'm wondering about is, so we, we mentioned that, you know, at least in, um, for my part, I get a lot of social network type jobs. It's like, I want something that's like Twitter, except it does this. <laughs> or I, I want something <laughs> like Facebook, except it does this. Um, what what other types of projects do you guys typically see as far as you know functionality or whatever goes and and we can include Eric on this. I'm a little curious to see what kind of um, what what kind of plugins people are asking you for. So you totally nailed it, man. Most of my clients have been I want something like Facebook, but this. I don't ever. I don't think there's one time I've had a client try to do a social network. And that's it. I mean, I don't think anybody's ever asked me to do a social network. I don't think I'd ever help somebody do a social network. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, 90% uh, of the stuff I do, well, let's say 70% of the stuff I do is 
boring internal only type apps or for a very small section of people. I work with big pharma companies and or I work with people that work with big pharma companies and so to manage all the doctors they use to pimp their drugs basically there's a, a site for that and I helped for at least some drug companies and so I helped build that. I've done a bunch of dashboards uh, so you can see one was for an insurance company so you could see the the sales, basically how the sales aggregate through downlines. So it's the pyramid scheme. So you sell and then you have agents under you that sell and you can roll all that up and see how they're they're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's all a bunch of one-off stuff and not. I don't know if I can get into details without naming all the the specific products I've worked on, but in, in fairness, I say I've worked on a lot of social networks, but they, some of them have varied pretty far from standard social network fare. But it just seems inevitable. Almost every client wants. I want to be able to follow that. I want users to be able to follow each other. I want them to be able to like things. I want them to be able to to comment on things. And they and invariably there's that that huge Facebook flavor that gets associated with all of that. And the part that really gets me frustrated personally. And this is armchair quarterbacking, I'll completely admit right now, is how they end up with products that in some way or another resemble Facebook, which doesn't feel to me like a recipe for success. It feels like, hey, we're going to I mean, really, I mean, you, you succeed by being, in a lot of cases, by being different. If you're just imitating someone else who's successful, to me, it starts to feel like cargo culting. Right. So, so one, one, one other question this leads me into then is, let's say you have the client that comes to you and says, I want a Twitter clone, like down to the last feature. I mean, do you do you tell them no? Do you try and talk them out of it? Yes. Yeah, I, I help. try and talk them out of it. <laughs> yep, or help them write the Craigslist ad. <laughs> 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 no, so I, I, I've actually had um, one lead like that before, and I you know, took the requirements apart, talked to the client, and said, "Well, you realize, you know, X, Y, and Z is exactly like Twitter or exactly like Facebook, and you, don't you want to be different?" Yeah, my my deal with because the the first client he came to me and he said, yeah, I want you to build me a Twitter clone, and yeah, I was, I, I almost laughed at him, and then I but I looked at him and I said, now you realize that you have a couple of problems, and he's like, really, what are those? And yeah, the first thing I said was, well, Twitter's not making money, and I'm I'm still not sure if they are or not, but if they are now, they weren't then, and uh, then I started explaining, okay, look, um, you know, here are some of the other issues here. And so he started talking to me about the niche that he wanted the site for and what what in particular um, he, he wanted to accomplish. And then we, we kind of came up with the unique selling proposition. And, you know, he, it, it turned out that he had a much better idea of what he wanted than, than he initially pitched me on. I've had that with some clients before, too, where... What they what they tell me is initially that they want is really not what they want, and I don't find out what it is until we get into a discovery process, and I pull lots of teeth, metaphorically mm-hmm. speaking, and then sometimes suss out. Well, they don't they don't necessarily want an X clone. They they actually want these features, and they can be very different. But right. Well, the other and and I think we have a responsibility to our clients to do that kind of thing, the pulling teeth totally. or. Uh, you know, basically saying, look, in, in order for me to most effectively provide you the value, because, I mean, that's the whole point, right? Right. It's, it's part of communicating that yeah. if, if they tell you they want a Twitter clone and that's the extent of the communication, you'll build them a Twitter clone and then they'll probably say, well, but that's not the Twitter clone I wanted. Right. So it, it, it's part of the 
so-called <coughs> agile process of you know basically which is just called talk to your client frequently and and understand them and, and yeah totally with you yeah so yeah and and I went through this with uh, my newest client who I'm actually kind of uh, in the middle of a rush job I mean the I'm doing the podcast because um, I, I feel like I owe it to the audience and I'm also doing it because I would go freaking insane if I had to write any more code before noon today. Hmm. So, um, anyway, it, so we went through this whole process and, and I mean, we, we were on this total rush time crunch deal that, you know, we have to get things done by Monday and, you know, it, it really benefited him because the, the first night that I quote unquote got to work, I mean, I, you know, I sat down and I, I, I hammered out, you know, some of the features that I knew were going to be in there. But he went through and he revamped like half of the process because I started asking him questions and he realized that some of the stuff didn't line up properly. And so, you know, we, we really do need to do that kind of stuff for our clients so that they they get what they need out of it and so that we can, you know, do the best job for them that we can. Well, flip side, um, my latest client, they won't, they're uh, – and this fortunately is very different from some other things I've done. They want a learning management system. And so I was digging around a little bit because they had some specific requirements for learning management for what they wanted out of an LMS. And they were talking about basically just building something from the ground up. And, and then looking around, there are several LMSs, some of which are open source and have really friendly licenses on them, that they could either potentially try to participate in or they could fork and add to. And so I said, hey, you guys, maybe you don't want to build something from scratch. Maybe you want to start here. Because before I came along, they were talking about essentially building something from scratch. Yeah, and I, I've done that too. So your Twitter one, I mean, this is what I don't understand yet. I mean, Twitter, can't you just push them to Yammer and have them, or one of the 50 Twitter clones that are on GitHub? I mean, I, and the social networks, I mean, Love by Less, or, I mean, I know it's a lot of customization, but, I mean, so, I don't know. So I it de- have- it depends. Um, in this particular case, I mean, the only thing he really wanted was the kind of the short update that, that you can get from Twitter and some of the following features. And then um, there were a whole slew of other features. Um, I, I'm going to get a little less general, and I'm going to get about as close to the you know the NDA or hand, handshake on. I won't tell them what, what I'm building for you or whatever. Um, and, and just mention that this is a fitness app. So there are a lot of features that are related to that that he wanted in there that didn't necessarily fall under a Twitter clone. Right. And so, um, you know, those handful of features, in order for me to modify somebody else's code versus just building it myself, it probably would have been sixes either way. Just figuring out what, what these other folks had done with, with that app. And so I just, I just hammered it together myself. And for my clients, it's been by the time I get there, they already had a ton of code that they wrote themselves, so it's too late to bring in something else. Right. So you do, At the, least, you do mm-hmm. the big rewrites? No, 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 no. I almost never, ever, ever advocate big rewrites. It's always how can we make what you have work better? Right. I guess I guess that's what I meant was just that you, you rewrite one section at a time or rework one section at a time so that it does what they need. Pretty much. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm definitely not in favor of big rewrites. I've, I've done enough big rewrites even in the government space where it's so obvious that they're going to fail because if you don't have if you don't have all the features documented clearly somewhere then what you're really doing as part of your rewrite is reverse engineering effort of your own product or or the client's product and if unless they've memorized every little feature and they can jot them down for you you're invariably going to miss some and then you end up with an unhappy client 
But yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, we need to get into the picks because I need to start uh, wrapping this up because I've, I've got to get ready for another podcast uh, in about an hour. So, um, Eric, why don't you go ahead and share your picks with us? Um, okay. So I got two today. The first one is Vagrant. Um, it's at vagrantup.com. If you haven't heard of it, it's basically a Ruby gym that manages virtual box virtual machines. So you get to create a file that says, I want three virtual machines, each one to have a gig of RAM. One's going to be called this, one's going to be called that. And then you run a command and Vagrant will actually install the virtual machines, boot them up, and you can basically SSH in. Um, I found it really, really useful for doing like DevOps type stuff. Like if I'm trying to set up a new server, I can actually build a virtual machine or actually a whole virtual network practice the setup, figure out how to code it up and puppet, and then once cool. it's all good, I actually push that to my main servers. Um, it's also really good, like, um, I had to do some WordPress development for for one of the products I'm working on, and instead of installing a pat or installing Apache, installing PHP, installing MySQL, all that stuff on my laptop, I made a virtual machine, installed it all in the virtual machine, did my work on the virtual machine, and then when I was done, shut it down. And so I didn't actually have all these conflicting configurations on my laptop. And this is good if you're doing like Postgres. If you have like one app uses Postgres 9, but another app uses Postgres 8, you, it's kind of hard to balance like which one's installed. Um, you can just throw them in virtual machines and keep them separated. So Vagrant's the easiest way I found for that. Um, it's not really that good for like production stuff, I don't think, but for like development and hacking on things, it's really great. And then my second pick is a post by DHH. It's called Rookies in the Bike Shed. Oh, um, yeah. If you've ever worked on open source or maintained it or any of that stuff, it's something you have to read. It's basically he talks about bike shedding and about how bad it is. And I've, you know, I'm basically what a lead developer, core whatever thing of Chili Project, and I was working in Redmine for years. And I could probably say with good certainty, 50% of my time in open source is shutting down bike sheds, and it sucks, especially if I want to actually do the code. You know, I spend more time managing than I actually do coding now. So it's a good read. It's I'm kind of start linking to this whenever people start a bike shed. I'm going to say, hey, go read this post and then come back to this discussion and see what you have to contribute later. Nice. All right, Jeff, what are your picks? All right, well, I guess uh, Active Admin would be my pick. I know there's been a lot of love for Rails Admin, but I'm not a fan of Plus admin. one Active Admin. So I guess the big difference is that Rails Admin tries to scaffold everything for you out of the box and give you a CRUD interface to all your models. And if I didn't say Active Admin, I'm, if I didn't say Rails Admin, that's what Rails Admin does. Active Admin goes the other way and doesn't do anything. Out of the box, you have to do it all. But it's dead simple to get CRUD stuff up and running. And you can still customize it fairly easily. And so before Active Admin, I was using Typus, which was, I, I, I don't know, it's another admin. It had some generators and some config files that managed permissions and attributes and stuff like that. And it was really good. And I moved to Active Admin because it was prettier. And I ended up liking Active Admin. So that's the first one. Vagrant is a good pick. I agree with uh, Eric. There's another project out there called Vwee, V-E-E-W-E-E. -E which helps you build Vagrant boxes and share them with your team, if you have a team, if you work with other people. 
So, <laughs> wait, did you, you don't do that. Sometimes I do. People oh suck. God. And oh, uh, a trucker, are you channeling Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> Dumb people really suck. <laughs> I think trying. those are my two big ones. The third one is a uh, is a book I'm reading now. I have to find the name of it. Something about habits. Seven habits of highly effective people. No, no. The no. now habit or whatever. No, I don't know. I'll find it. It's some, some it's book. some new book that's got a yellow cover. It's about the habit cycle, the cue, action, and reward. Uh, Amy Hoy talked about it, and it hit some of the some of the blogs I read a couple weeks ago, and I finally got around to reading it. It's been a good read so far. I mean, I don't have the quote, so I'm not going to mention it. It's The Power of Habit. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. The Power of Habit. All right, uh, Evan, what are your picks? Well, before I do that, I asked Eric in the back channel, and he didn't answer, or now he's starting to type. No, that wasn't it. Eric, do you, so are you, are you actually writing automated tests against your, your vagrant deployments to test out your production deployment? I'm not writing tests to test that I test my deployment that is deployed correctly. <laughs> well, because I mean, well, well, the, the test you're doing is essentially a manual one. It's, you run your you run your your deployment again using Vagrant rather than doing it in production, and then you just double check it by hand. Yeah, I mean, when you get into Puppet or Chef or any DevOps stuff, you kind of realize like testing's a bitch. And oh sure, the, the way I test is I'll get in there and I'll hack on a server and think like, okay, I think this is configured. And then what I'll do using Vagrant is blow away that server completely, build a new one from scratch, run my right. config again and make sure it's good. That gets most of the errors. I mean But you, you just you just said a big one there. Testing you know, testing would be a bitch, but to me that sounds like an opportunity for more tools. There is a tool out there. There there's some R spec for Vagrant stuff out there. And I think there's some R spec for Puppet out there. I don't know about the chef world, but to make sure that your puppet configs have been specced and to make sure uh, your vagrant configs have been specced. And there's some automation that gets added to the mix, too. I mean, because the end, sort of the far end of the spectrum, when you go towards uh, continuous deployment, you can have Jenkins spit out, uh, basically have Jenkins fire up a new configuration or have Vagrant ready to fire up something and do all your automated testing on Vagrant after the fact. But I mean scale from, not scale, but uh, provision a box from bare metal basically, then deploy the code, then do your automated testing, which is a step removed from your servers for continuous deployment. But what, what I would tend to think is that you would want something like a automate, you would want an acceptance testing tool for your deployment process that would well, involve that would involve creating all those vagrant boxes and then actually trying to run use your app as an actual user through is through a browser or a simulated browser if we're talking about a web app to make sure things are working correctly among other things maybe i mean realistically you're the farther you get into this rabbit hole the worse it gets like puppet i know as a company they're doing more with the testing stuff but it's hard and Oh, I'm saying, I, to be realistic about it, like I didn't get into it when you guys were talking about TDD because that's I could rant for hours about it. But 
if your puppet configuration is wrong and your database server goes offline, you're going to know five seconds later about it. It's You don't need to spend 40 hours to write a test for it. You can write a simple test, or in my case, I have a Nagios that checks my server every minute. Right. And so the cost of writing automated tests to check something versus the cost of actually just correcting a really bad boo-boo it, it's so far weighted and just do the bare minimum and then just correct the boo-boos as they come. And so yeah. that's how I look at it. If okay. you're doing like 500 servers, you know, your Amazon or whatever, then yeah, you might spend time on testing that. But for me, it, it's just impractical. Well, from, from talking to... Um, oh, crap, I, I, I feel remember. a DevOps episode coming on. Yeah. From talking to, I can't remember his last name, uh, Will from Heroku, who's on their Postgres team, he says that they actually have a process, for example. So this is what I, I was thinking too as you were talking about it, mm-hmm. that, that goes from machine to machine, pinging... You know, essentially talking to each Postgres server to say, "Hey, are you live? You know, hey, is the the database up? Okay, cool. Go on to the next." You're, one. But you're talking about Heroku. How many Postgres yeah. servers do they have? A lot. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's some threshold they crossed where it became worth it suddenly for them, yeah. and probably not that suddenly. Just can't right. imagine it'd be that hard to iterate over a set of servers and just connect. And All right. So why don't you get on that? Yeah, well, if, I mean, because I have so much free time. Here's the thing: like, if you want to ping ten servers, yeah, that's fine. If you want to go and log in, get behind a firewall, get through your cluster, mm-hmm. and make sure Fair memcache enough. is running, yes. you know, or memcache didn't reboot after your last puppet run. I mean, it you get into really complex problems, and because and I, not I, just I, that memcache <laughs> is running, that memcache is running and is configured the way you expect it to be configured, right? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's trade-offs. The, like you could test it, but um, that, well, me, that's I, the, but that's also kind of the difference. Now, now we're getting into testing. That's kind of the difference between an acceptance test and a unit test. You're not going to. Well, and it's also the zealots that say 100% test coverage is where you need to be all the time. And 100% test coverage, you can still fail, but that's again completely different topic. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, real quick, Evan, my, there's yeah. a post by DHH about a bike shed. I'll link it to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're a funny guy. Well, and what did they do in this bike shed? So, uh, so other than being mean to me, Eric, come on, I'm Evan, what's saying, your I'm not, I'm not saying yeah, you should do this. I'm saying mm, this might be something worth thinking about. That's all. Didn't you go watch the Twilight movie? No, I didn't go watch the Twilight movie. I hate those things. Did you go uh, watch Sparkly Vampires? Animal? No, I don't have a Jar Jar stuffed animal either. He's got a Jar Jar Snuggie. <laughs> don't have Jar Jar Snuggie. Don't make me start. Linking, don't make me start linking more Jar Jar violence. So my my first pick is an article by uh, Michael Feathers about how applications should on the outside be OO and on the inside be functional. Um, I was catching up on my Insta paper this morning and kind of an interesting read. Um, Mike's always pushing the bounds with with functional programming, at least in Ruby, um, and well. I kind of find this kind of stuff neat, and plus, I, it, not having side effects in your application generally considered a good thing. Having side effects is can often be painful, even though it's how well we write to databases, how we store you know, anything. But um, when you have to maintain an awful lot of state, that leaves a lot more room for error. Duh. Um, so that's one pick. Another pick, if we're just talking about tools, um, it, so because this is a Ruby episode, I'm particularly a fan of Pry lately. Um, for those of you who might not be familiar, Pry is a little bit like a debugger, but not really. It, it'll let you pop into a a console, an IRB-like session in the middle of running your code, whether it's test or not. And it provides a whole bunch of really nice features that are not in the debugger, 
Um, for example, one feature that saved me um, a lot of pain after already spending way too much time trying to figure out what's going on is a prize ability to tell you where a piece of code is defined. So it helped me find this evil monkey patch that someone made to a, a uh, gem I was using. Um, and finally, my last pick would be Mass Effect 3, because that's where I've been spending a lot of my time since I got back from uh, conferencing and taking a small break between clients, is uh, playing Mass Effect 3, which is a pretty darn cool game with a pretty good story. Do you, do you have, test drive your gaming? I do not test drive my gaming. I die a lot. <laughs> okay. So that, that, that's manual testing. I die. So would that be a unit test or an acceptance test? No, no, no. That would be ma- that's manual testing, Eric. That's the worst kind. <laughs> All right. Um, I suppose I'm next. I'm not sure if I picked this before, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and pick it because I've been playing with it and I've been really liking it. And that is Scrivener. Um, basically, it's a very expensive, it's like 40 bucks or something on the um, Apple App Store. But it's a really nice way of outlining and building um, content. Um, it's, it's geared toward authors, but I've been using it to put together um, like some courses and digital products that I've been working on. Um, for, for content. Of course, I haven't been doing that this last week because I've been under this time crunch for this client. But, uh, you know, it's really nice and you can break things down all the way, you know, up to the, the top level and you kind of get an outline on the left. Um, but you can you can get like uh, note cards and you can put summaries on the note cards and move them around. You can move note cards, um, you know, under each other so that, you know, you can see the outline for one area. You click on the, the note card for that that section and then you see the note cards for the subsections and uh, anyway it's it's really really nice um and, and it allows all, you to break stuff up the way that you kind of think about it and by authors you, i mean it's for book authors and before it hit the mac app store i think it was like 80 or 90 bucks yeah so 40 bucks is not expensive as people like you that bitch about a one dollar iphone app they took a hundred hours to make or something I, that's a <laughs> That's a rant for another day, but uh, Scrivener is some really cool stuff. It's got storyboarding and actors, yeah. and you can do some amazing stuff with Scrivener. Yeah, and it's got a really, really nice tutorial in it. So I've, I've actually spent like an hour or so working through the tutorial, and oh, okay, so this is how I do this, and this is how I do that. And you, just understanding all the organizational features in it just really makes a big difference. They make something else good too. It's what maritime software, Mariner software. Don't they make Mac Journal or something? Um, they make something else I've used too. That is pretty yeah. good. This is literature and latte makes it. Oh, they might have been bought then. Yeah, let's see. Scrivener about Scrivener. I thought it was Mariner software. Yeah, Mac Journal makes Mariner software. Oh, they have Story Mill. I'm thinking of. Yeah. Anyway, so so I I'm really liking it. And then um, as far as Ruby and Rails development goes, um, there are a couple of uh, books or tutorials out there that I really recommend to people if you're just getting into Ruby and Rails. Um, one of them is the Ruby t- uh, Ruby on Rails tutorial by Michael Hartle. Um, that's, I think it's at railstutorial.org. That doesn't sound right to me. Anyway, I'll find it and link to it in the show notes. And then um, the other one is a book that I just read. In fact, it was our uh, book club book for uh, for Ruby Rogues, and that is Crafting Rails Applications by uh, Jose Valim. Ooh, that's a pretty advanced book, though. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it really kind of pulls back the covers on how Rails works. Yeah, and, and I think and I think that's really cool. I was talking to uh, 
to you, James Edward Gray, on over Twitter about it. And mm-hmm. the first time I cracked that book about a year ago, my head hurt a bit. And when I cracked it more recently, like, oh, that makes sense now. So, uh, yeah. but, well, but then again, I'm a total moron. So what do I know? But <laughs> but I'm, I, I think it's a pretty advanced book. But if we're going to talk about learners, if you're talking about just learning Rails, you mentioned Michael Hartle's tutorial. It's kind of unfair not to mention the Ruby koans for learning Ruby. Yes. I think true. they're just called cones. Um, no, it's still on rubycoans.com. Um, no, but I think but it's now pronounced they're, they're, like pine cone. Oh, I don't know how you pronounce it exactly. Um, it's but, spelled K-O-A-N, so make your own choice. Yeah, uh, sure. You should test drive that. Yeah, okay, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't already know Ruby, the Ruby Coans are basically just a, a bunch of failing automated tests that you're supposed to go in and, and on a test-by-test basis fix them. And by doing that, because of the way the, the tests are organized, you build up an understanding of Ruby pretty quickly over time, kind of experimentally. Um, and I've recommended them to basically every single Ruby beginner who comes my way, and I've never heard any complaints. Uh, I've, I've, done the, I've done the Coens, I guess, one and a half times before now, and, uh, and I've loved them too. There are so many niches that get covered in there. Yep, absolutely. Sorry. Those are the picks. Um so, a nod to the Ruby Koans, follow the path of enlightenment. Koan. Koans. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Anyway, um, so with that, uh, you can find us in iTunes, or if you're listening to something else, I had somebody recently say that on the Android, if that's the way you listen to podcasts, Dog Catcher is a really good way of getting podcasts. So anyway, you can just uh, grab the RSS feed off of the website, rubyfreelancers.com. And uh, you can get all of the episodes that way. We're up to episode nine. I'll probably have the episode we recorded at Mountain West Ruby Conference up within the next week or so. Um, just just getting that worked out. But I haven't had time to, to rip the audio out of the video and, and take care of that. So go ahead. I was going to say, next week, the part of Evan Light will be played by someone else. Because <laughs> I'll be on travel. Where are you going? Uh, San Francisco. Okay. But yeah, um, other than that, we've got some uh, other stuff going on. I'm actually going to be out of town at the end of the month because the Ruby Rogues are going to be doing a session at RailsConf. So anyway, if you have suggestions for us, go to the website, click on request a topic and uh, let us know what you want to hear about. And uh, we have been pulling these topics from that list. So it's definitely a good way to do that. And hopefully next week we'll, we'll be able to talk about taxes and accounting and stuff. Um, and we will catch you all next week. See ya. Bye. Later. Oh, one last thing. Um, last we are not lawyers. We are not lawyers. Yeah. What uh, accountants? <laughs> You're the tax man. Right. Uh, last week the episode came out. I had several people complain to me that it was like 58 minutes of, uh, dead air. If, if well, you have that up, ep- if the, you have that copy of the episode, go back and redownload it. Uh, we, we put up a copy that actually has sound on it so you can hear us talk about products. That was Evan ranting about Jar Jar and we just muted him. <laughs> Instead of bleeping me for a whole episode, I just couldn't stop cursing. <laughs> All right.